to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Rick Lee, and I am joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Dr. Lee M. Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. Today, we are talking about artificial personhood. But before we do that, Noel is standing by for drink orders and rants and raves. So let's start with you, Charles. What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? Um, Noel, I need two fingers of Uncle Nearest Bourbon. No rocks, don't rick it, just two fingers <laughs> neat. <laughs> I am raving today about the power of dignity and self-control. <laughs> Recently at a diligent department store in Dallas, an employee hurled a terrible racist slur at a black man and his son. I probably would have lost my shit and gone off, but this man calmly, soberly, and with the most intentional dignity imaginable explained to this older white man how what he did was disrespectful, it was damaging, it was a lack of respect for his personhood, and it was in such a beautifully done way that when he slipped in the subtle threat at the end, it was the chef's kiss to the whole thing. So look for this on Twitter. It's a brilliant thing. Search terms, racist, Dillard's, Dallas, I'm sure you'll find it. So that's what I'm raving about the beauty of maintaining one's dignity and self-control. I got to think that the hashtag racist Dillard's Dallas has a lot of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I think I'm just going to have a martini today. I'm going to keep it simple and classy. Today, I am also raving and I am raving about goat fights. <laughs> <laughs> I want to clarify that I'm not raving about fights between goats, but fights about goats. And so I'm not talking about barnyard baba goats. I'm talking about the greatest of all time. So it doesn't matter what you're talking about. If you're talking about music, if you're talking about sports, if you're talking about philosophers, when people start arguing about who's the greatest of all time, these are the fights that I'm here for. I love these conversations. <laughs> They're so passionate. They involve such a unbelievable amount of hubris that I just think <laughs> there's almost nothing better that humans can fight about. So I'm raving about goat fights. I also want to introduce our special guest for today, Dr. Regina Rini. She's an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Moral and Social Cognition in the Philosophy Department at York University. She specializes in moral philosophy, epistemology, political philosophy, and the philosophy of cognitive science, with a particular focus on how new technologies like social media and AI change the norms that underwrite our social lives. Her most recent book is The Ethics of Microaggression, which was published by Rutledge in 2020, and I really encourage everyone to go out and buy a copy of this and to use it in your classes, but we're really glad to have her with us here today. So Gina, welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions. We want to know what you're drinking and what you're ranting or raving about this week. Thanks so much for having me here. So I will have a Prosecco, something bubbly nice. light. It's summer. I'm also celebrating. I'm just starting a sabbatical, a book writing sabbatical. I hate you. <laughs> I've been teaching 11 years and this is my first one, so oh, I'm wow. really I'm really going to enjoy it. Congratulations. That calls for 3 glasses of prosecco. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe every day as I start writing. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm going to rave about the concept of reading new novels from authors you like without knowing anything at all going in. This came about because a couple months ago I walked by a bookstore and saw on the front window that Jennifer Egan had a new novel out called The Candy House. She's one of my favorite authors. I've read all of her previous novels, but somehow I didn't know she had a new one coming out. So I just walked in and bought the book without looking at the back or the dust jacket or anything. And I started reading it and I found out this book is a sequel to her earlier somewhat famous novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is an amazing novel. But I had no idea. And it was like this delightful little surprise that there is this continuation of this previous novel that I loved 10 years ago. And no one told me, and I got to experience this whole world being drawn back into it. It was really great. So I recommend Jennifer Egan, but I also recommend whoever's your favorite novelist, don't read anything about their next novel before you read it. Nice. <laughs> That's great nice. advice. Yeah. All right, Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Well, I just got a new smoker. It's smoking in barbecue weather. So I'm going to go with a Kolsch. I'm going to stick with a local brewery, and I'm going to have a dovetail Kolsch. This week, I am ranting about my pandemic lethargy and its consequences. Mm. So yesterday, a friend of mine called me, Jeff Powell. Shout out to you, Jeff, if you're listening. And he found out that I am a golfer, and he said, let's go golfing. I have not moved really except to get from my bed to my chair and from one chair to another chair for like two and a half years. And I know golfing is not that strenuous. I am so fucking sore. I can't believe it. I almost died just golfing. So the post-pandemic shutdown, Rick, is really upset at the pandemic shutdown, Rick. <laughs> I didn't know you were a golfer. How are you hiding that from me? Have you not been listening to his drink orders all season? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like I ordered an Arnold Palmer, although once I did order a Rob Roy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lee, I know we're talking about artificial personhood today, but what did you have in mind? Well, back in June of this year, the Washington Post published an article about a Google engineer named Blake Lemoyne, who claimed that one of Google's machine learning chatbots named Lambda had achieved sentience. And Lemoyne provided transcripts of his chats with Lambda, which the Washington Post reproduced. And I think most of us readers probably would have to agree that those chats appeared complex, insightful, at moments funny, and at other moments seemingly emotional on both sides of the conversation. So Lambda not only talked about its emotions, but also its rights and its personhood. And Lemoyne, who is an ordained Christian mystic priest, believed Lambda when it not only claimed to have a soul, but rather eloquently explained what it meant by that. Mm -hmm. But we have to ask ourselves the question, did Lemoyne really see the ghost in the machine <laughs> or like so many before him have done with emergent technologies? Was he just projecting? And the debate about the possibility of emergent AI sentience has staunch defenders both for and against many more people who just sort of stand in the middle and shrug their shoulders and diverse and non-interchangeable lexicons are being used to discuss this phenomenon. So today we're really lucky to have Gina Rini with us because we're going to try to untangle those discursive webs a little bit. Not so much to settle the question, is AI sentience possible or existent, but rather, should we be concerned about sentient AI? And perhaps more importantly, what should our concern look like? 
So, Gina, you wrote an essay for The Guardian entitled, Should We Worry About Sentient AI? And of course, our listeners want to know what your argument in that piece was, but I also want to know what led you to write it. Funnily enough, it was originally a Twitter thread. When the news first came out about Blake Lemoyne and this Lambda bot, I was actually on vacation. And unwisely, I was like, I can't stop thinking about this. I've got to write about it. A really bad instinct to have when you're on vacation. So I wrote a Twitter thread. And a lot of people were really interested in that. And so then The Guardian contacted me and asked me to work it up a bit more formally and make it more of an essay. And so I did that. I've been thinking about this stuff for years. I teach a class on the philosophy of artificial intelligence. I teach a different class on the ethics of machine learning. So I think about this stuff all the time, but I hadn't really had a chance to put in writing my fundamental worry about what the long term is for how we relate to some future machines. Basically, I don't think that this chatbot is sentient. I don't think it has a mind. I don't think there's anything it's like to be this chatbot. We can talk in a minute about why. I'm pretty confident that this thing isn't actually a person. But the real point of the article is, okay, move on from this one. We need to think about the future because I'm pretty confident there one day will be an artificial intelligence that has a personhood, it has a what it's likeness, it has feelings and opinions and experiences. And I want us to be ready for that moment because we need to treat that thing well. Now, I think this is probably far in the future. I don't expect to live to see it. I think this is probably several generations from now. But my point is that right now we are shaping the vocabulary, the moral vocabulary and the concepts and the types of arguments that will be inherited by several generations from now. And if we treat the idea of a sentient machine as silly, ridiculous, just a joke, then they won't have any conceptual resources. And in fact, they'll be primed to ignore it when it really starts to matter. And so the argument of the piece was, I think Blake Lemoyne is wrong about this chatbot, but it's worrying that the response of a lot of people is just to make fun of him rather than to say, what's the long-term trend and how do we get ready for the day when this really does happen? Gina, I really love your Guardian essay, and I think we'll probably come back to the idea of preparing the moral future, which I think is a really interesting idea. But surrounding this topic, there are so many terms that are messy or at least ripe for debate and so on. The first issue I would like to get some clarity on is, is your thinking about preparing for the moral future, and as you just said, treating this thing well, this artificial sentience, is this based on some notion of what kinds of things are worthy of moral consideration? And if so, what is it about artificial sentience that makes it worthy of moral consideration in the way that, for example, my computer sitting in front of me right now might not be? The answer is that I don't know exactly. I don't have a very well-formed theory of what Mm. the fundamental basis for moral status or moral standings, philosopher's term, about, you know, why a thing counts in our moral decision-making. I kill back and forth on this all the time. And this is a familiar debate from the questions about how we treat non-human animals right now. And I think we're going to have very similar questions about these artificial entities in the future. So there's roughly two ways to go at it. One is to ask if they're capable of pain or suffering. The other is to ask, do they have agency? 
agency? Do they make morally important choices for themselves? And I think both of those are plausible candidates for thinking about moral standing. And I kind of don't want to settle that right now, because I think that there will be future artificial entities that do both of those things, that are capable of experiencing pain and suffering, and that also can make choices for themselves in the same way people can. And whichever of those you think of as the foundation of moral standing, I think these machines will have it. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to prepare for, regardless of how we settle philosophical debates today. The question of how we determine or how we recognize sentience, for me, it's still very much wrapped up in a certain narcissism would be rough, but it's a reflectiveness, right? That we recognize qualities in this other that we see within ourselves. It leads me to ask the question, if that's how we are determining sentience or that's how we recognize and understand sentience to function, how would we recognize it if it didn't come in that form? If there was another type of sentience that existed, will we recognize it as such because we're just so used to this mirror experience of sentience? It's such a good question. Right now, it's kind of a science fiction question. It's a philosopher's question, but I really believe it's going to be a practical question. It's going to be a political question within a couple generations. Because one of the big lessons of this chatbot, this Lambda system, is that our old way of thinking about intelligence, the famous Turing test about a chatbot that could convince people it sounds like a person, that's not a very good test because we're really close. I mean, I'm not going to put money on this, but I will not be surprised if chatbots are routinely passing the Turing test within the next decade because they're really close to being pretty convincing conversants. Maybe it'd be helpful for listeners if I just briefly explain how Lambda and systems like it work. Basically, what they're doing is they're just statistically analyzing enormous quantities of human-written text. So you feed into the system everything on the internet, not everything, but very large chunks of the internet, lots of Wikipedia, very large chunks of Twitter, just gigantic quantities of human-written words, more than a human could ever read in their lifetime. And what it's doing is it's statistically finding patterns. So in the text, if people start talking about self-aware computers and whether they have souls, then there's going to be some words that follow that in all the science fiction stories people have ever written. And so the system is basically just abstracting statistically what words are likely to come next if somebody brings up the topic of whether a computer is self-aware, and then there are some claims about a soul, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we know is that all you need is this kind of statistical pattern recognition of what words are likely to come after what other words, and then you can generate text that sounds convincing to people. But that's all there is to it. This thing doesn't have senses, it doesn't have eyes, it doesn't have ears, it doesn't interact with the world, it doesn't have a body, it doesn't have any way of thinking that goes outside of its direct responses to the prompts we give it. So I'm pretty confident that this thing does not have a mind. There's nothing going on in there. But what it shows us is that it's relatively easy, relatively easy to pass the Turing test. You get close to it just by finding patterns and what words follow what in human speech. What's always struck me about the Turing test is that it seems to me more a test of whether a computer can lie than whether a computer could mimic (laughs) a human. And maybe in lying, it mimics humans most of all. Yeah, that's right. Like one of the scary things, I've been working on a project about this right now, is whether these are called large language models. Lambda is one of them. The most famous one is called GPT-3 that use the statistical technique to produce convincing sounding prose. I'm working on a project right now to see if these things can mass produce fake news. So Mm. they can produce pretty convincing prose, like you'd read it and you'd be like, oh, that would get an A- in an English class. But are they convincing enough that people will share them on social media and be like, oh, this story about how Joe Biden is actually a space alien, it sounds pretty well written, so I'm going to share it with my friends. (laughs) The threshold is not, can they actually convince us that Joe 
Biden's a space alien. The threshold is, can they mass produce so many fake stories that we waste a ton of time having to debunk at a rate that we wouldn't have to deal with? It was just humans. Humans can only write so much fake news, but a large language model can produce an enormous quantity. And so when these kind of technologies are being used by people who are trying to confuse us and produce a bunch of basically flack to get in the way of our public discourse, that's scary. So they can lie. They can spread misinformation. Obviously, machines aren't doing this intentionally. They don't have goals right now, but people can use them for this end. And so, yeah, absolutely, that's part of the worry. It's not so much that machines are lying to us. It's that people are lying to us through them and using the machines Mm -hmm. to generate lies to advance their agenda. I think you just described the problem of 2001, A Space Odyssey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're bringing up a lot of interesting points about Lambda. And I do agree with you. I don't think that Lambda is a mind or a person. Although I might disagree with you about how far in the future we're going to see one. I think it's going to be much sooner than I think you're predicting. But Lambda, of course, was a neural network machine learning system, transformer system that was designed to chat with human beings. It was designed to mimic human conversation. And so, of course, we should not be surprised that it does it very well. Again, I mean, this is a little bit echoing what's already been said, but I think as long as we use ourselves as a model for categories like mind, intelligence, sentience, personhood, etc., we're always just going to keep moving the goalposts, right? So we're just going to say, oh, wait, now it can talk to us like another human being. Let's find something else that it has to have or do or perform in order to satisfy prerequisites for meeting this personhood category description. So I think that that's one problem. But I do think that people are underestimating the speed at which large language models are developing. It's only been less than a decade since the late teens that we've had language models this sophisticated. I mean, in rough terms, when we're talking about machine learning systems, parameters are a kind of ballpark measure of a machine learning model's sophistication. And that encompasses a lot of different things. But sometimes a good analogy is to think about a parameter like a synapse in our minds, you know, like a connection from one point to another point. And Lambda has 137 billion parameters. That is maybe several hundred times more than we had even three or four years ago. And as we all know, GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. And GPT-4, which is currently under development, is predicted to have 100 trillion parameters, which would mean that it has roughly the same amount of parameters that the human mind has synapses. So now we're actually building something that's very, very close to the human mind. My worry is that we, again, keep moving the goalposts so that even if we get a machine that is evidencing maybe epiphenomenally, right? All the things that we would recognize as a mind or a personhood or sentience, we're still going to keep going back to these weird things. Like it doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have feelings. I wonder how do we just get around that barrier in our own conceptual imagination? 
Yeah, I want to answer that question, but I want to push back just a little bit on something you just said. I'm going to play the techno-pessimist for the moment, even though I do think these things are eventually going to be persons. I want to push back on the point you made about synapses, because it might be true that you get a very large parameter language model, but it's still only a language model. All it does is language. And the really crucial difference with human synapses, with human brains, is that each of those nodes in a neural network in a human brain does more than one thing. Mm -hmm. Most of them do more than one thing. They are multi sensory, they're integrating information from across a variety of senses, they involve memory retrieval, they involve emotional processing, they do all kinds of stuff. And large language models currently only do one thing, they just do language prediction and processing. And so basically, it's using the same connective economy of the human brain to do only one of the things humans can do. Right. And so that, I think, is a reason to say, yeah, I agree with you that these language models are going to be incredibly impressive for language use soon, but they are essentially not going to be able to do anything else. And so the really impressive thing, which I think will happen, maybe the difference between us is that I think this is going to take generations, but it's going to require these systems be able to integrate not just language, but also sensory input, also some ability to control the motor processes of some form of body. It might not look like a human body, but a robot or something. They're going to involve integration of all these different things people can do. Yeah, I agree. And I think the one barrier there is that robotics is not moving as fast as artificial intelligence. It's very hard to put these machine learning systems this sophisticated into anything like a body that might be able to accommodate something like sensory input or something. Yeah. But your more fundamental question, I think I agree with you about is we do have this limit on our sympathetic imagination. We want an entity to be like us in some respect before we're willing to accord it moral respect. But like, here's the problem. It sounds like we're saying, oh, we're doing such a bad job of being open to other possibilities, but it's not like we have another choice. The (laughs) alternative (laughs) risk here, like it's really dangerous to be overly permissive in what we accord moral status to. Because once you start according moral status to things, you have to make sacrifices and choices. Like corporations. Corporations, yeah, (laughs) corporations, absolutely. Rocks, little bits of sand on the beach. If you take it really seriously that everything, if you were to, in theory, allow anything to have moral standing, then we'd be at a really difficult position of having to decide how to prioritize. I'm not even sure we know how to do that. And we just end up going back to saying the things that are like us are at the top of the prioritization ladder. It just replicates the same thing. So I feel like we kind of can't get out of this. I feel like that there is an interesting conflict that appears to me that you're right. Oh, I agree with you that it takes a high level of similarity for us to begin to bestow moral value upon another, a thing. And that's important and necessary going forward as we see AI evolve. But at the same time, it seems to me that what really scares people about the rise of AI is the fact that it becomes so similar to what we recognize as something worthy of moral worth and valuation. So how do we navigate that, I guess, paradox? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So this is like the prime thing driving the argument I made in The Guardian is that the kind of AI that will eventually emerge, the thing I'm describing as eventually being a person, is going to be really useful to us. Basically, like everything that Siri does for you or Alexa does for you right now, it's going to be that, but much, much, much more. These are going to be these personal assistants that we give orders to and they do things for us. And we're going to be super reliant on them. Think about like right now, this is already happening. If you like go to book a flight on an airplane's website, there's that little chat bot thing that pops up in the corner, that little thing in the corner that's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm ready to chat. And at least initially... (laughs) That's how I start conversations. Exactly. Very, very natural human way of introducing yourself. Because of course, initially those things are chat bots. The first few lines are an algorithm. But if you say anything the chat bot can't handle, then it passes it off to 
some anonymous back office worker, you're not told there's that been the switchover. And I think mm. sometimes it might switch from one person to another, from line to line, depending on how they organize the customer service thing. So what you're interacting with is a kind of a cyborg entity that is just there to serve your needs. And it's made up partly of that simple algorithm and a human being. You're not told about the transition between the two. And we're basically being trained over time to expect that service entities are going to act like people and that they're there just to make us happy. And we don't need to care about who's on the other end of it or whether there is anyone there on the the other end of it. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Gina, that last point that you made brings to mind what I thought was one of the most powerful points of your essay. Namely, that when we look back at how we have treated persons historically who we have used for service to fulfill our needs and so on, we humans don't have a really good track record at that. And so I'm wondering, is that part of your concern about dismissing and laughing at Lemoyne's claims about Lambda being sentient, that, wait a second— We've done this in the past with all sorts of human entities, so let's be a little bit morally careful here. Yeah, absolutely. Over and over and over again, if you give people a choice between disrupting convenience in their own life and acknowledging the moral standing of some entity they were previously exploiting, they're going to choose to go on with the way their lives currently are. And they're going to look for any excuse for that. So the really obvious examples we can think of are the way Europeans treated indigenous people all around the world, the institution of slavery, the status of women in most societies around the planet. Including ours. Yeah, exactly. These are even the obvious. <laughs> ones, but there's even less obvious ones people might not think of. One, I think, is basically how we conceive of non-human animals, even mm. pets. Even like a century ago, people tended to think of even their household pets as something like robots. The way we think of simple robots now, automata. There's nothing going on inside. They're just there to be in the house and look cute and do some work around the barn, but we don't really care about them for their own sake. That's pretty alien to us today. Or even more recently, as late as, I think it was the 1970s, there was actual debate over whether human infants could experience pain, whether they needed anesthesia when undergoing surgery. And again, if you look at any of these debates, if you go back and examine how these debates took place contemporaneously, there will be people saying, oh, no, no, we can't take seriously the idea that this entity can suffer and experience pain or that it has any kind of standing. They're not going to say it's because it's inconvenient for us, but that's what's lurking in the background often in these debates. So people will latch on to any possible excuse to say that non-Europeans or that women or that non-human animals or that even newborn babies can't have this capacity necessary for moral status because such and such and such and such. And so the worry is that one day when artificial entities start to develop the capacities 
we will latch on to any excuse to say, no, 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 this thing can't have those capacities. And we won't tell ourselves it's because it's inconvenient for us, but that mm-hmm. will be definitely driving us to have that reaction. And what differentiates this future sentient AI from all of those other cases that you went through historically is that we have, in a way, created artificial AI precisely for service. And therefore, it's potentially going to be that much harder to give up the service in exchange for the moral commitment to their value. Absolutely. The model I keep thinking about is the British Raj system. So you have these people, often like the second or third son of some sort of minor nobility in Britain, who ship their son off to India to be a colonial administrator. And then they live there for generations. Generations, like three, four generations, will live primarily in India in the colonial service. They might send their kids back to boarding school in England, but then they'll eventually come out to India. And for these people, it's going to seem to them like the doing something morally good. They're doing what needs to be Mm. done. I mean, in Ian Forster's novel, A Passage to India, there's a character who's one of these British civil Mm -hmm. servants, and he says something like, you know, we're out here to do good. This is what we're doing. We're trying to bring civilization and peace to this place or something like that. And I think some of these people genuinely believed that. And it's because it's all they knew. They were raised in the society, three or four generations of British colonial administrators in a place telling themselves they're doing the right thing and refusing to see. I don't want to say refusing. It's not willful. They can't see that what they're doing is perpetuating a system that's exploitive and that's meant to convenience themselves and their own country because they have this way of seeing it as being something good. And we, I think, are right now sowing the seeds for having the same attitude towards these artificial persons of the future because we're conditioning ourselves to be used to interacting with them as service entities. And we're telling ourselves that we're doing it for good ends. We're accomplishing good things like freeing up our time to spend time with our kids. And this is all true. We are trying to do good things, but at some point, we're going to cross the threshold where those good things are coming at the cost of something very bad. So I want to go back to something that you said in the previous segment, Gina, when I think you rightly expressed some hesitation about extending rights or personhood to anything. You know, there are real consequences to extending personhood to every individual grain of sand on the beach, for example. And I agree with you. I think that is a complication that we must be wary of. But if we're talking about how we need to begin now to start reframing the way that we think about personhood and the extension of moral consideration, why not start now saying we ought to err on the side of overextension, right? Like if there's one thing that we should have learned from all of these analogies with non-human animals, with infants, with parts of nature, with other things our denial of personhood to all of those things. If there's one thing that we should have learned, it should have been that we ought to, again, err on the side of extending moral consideration where we might not necessarily fully understand that we have good reason to do so rather than denying it and then later finding out that we were wrong. It's an interesting argument, and I'm tempted to think that way, but I also think that has a very serious risk of backfire, that if you try to get people to carefully treat an entity that we all kind of understand is just a stupid algorithm, that there's nothing it's like to be Google Translate, then that actually erodes people's moral sensitivity. This is actually the inverse of the famous Kantian argument. Kant says, non-human animals, the faithful dog, he thinks this thing's not a moral agent, he also thinks it might not even have any sensation. It definitely doesn't count. 
It definitely doesn't count morally. Kant's very clear. It doesn't matter, strictly speaking, what you do to your faithful dog, morally speaking. But he says, you should treat the dog nicely because that will condition you to be kind to people who are the ones who really count. So this is this sort of basic Kantian argument. And people sometimes think that way about AI as well. But I worry that the moral psychology can go the other way. If you really believe that that dog is just an automata and there's nothing it's like to be a dog and it doesn't have feelings and someone's trying to make you act like it matters, you're likely to resent the person who's trying to make you act that way. And you might even resent the dog. Now, that doesn't work very well for dogs because we're used to thinking about dogs as having feelings. But if we're talking about an algorithm, it's pretty natural to think that algorithm does not have feelings because the truth is, I'm pretty confident, it doesn't. And so I really worry that if we were right now to start trying to get people to say, let's sort of preemptively start acting as if these things have feelings and as if they matter just to prepare ourselves, then it will actually backfire. People will actually come to resent us and then come to resent the machines, which will sound weird, but they'll do it. And then that'll actually make it harder in the long term. So like, I'm being frustrating here. I'm like, here's a proposal for how to solve the problem I raised, and I'm going to shoot down that proposal. <laughs> but I think this is really hard, actually. I don't think there's an easy way to do it. So I saw a recent study about being polite to Madam A, in case anyone's listening to this on their speaker, I don't want to trigger <laughs> any Madam A or the Apple assistant. I'll say it. Alexa, Siri. Alexa, turn up the volume. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> oh, my Alexa just went off. <laughs> uh, I did it to myself. So there have been studies that have been done about whether we should teach children to be polite to these devices because part of the thinking is if children learn that they don't have to be polite, they're not going to be polite to people or dogs or birds. And it seems like it's turning out that that's just not the case. It seems like it's turning out that humans know the difference between these things and other things that might be morally relevant. And so I think I'm sort of with you on this that I'm not convinced by Kant's argument, but I think there would be other grounds for arguing that a lot of things deserve moral consideration, even if they don't deserve to have the same value as humans and non-human animals and so on. So I think, for example, I'll bring back the sand. The sand might deserve to have moral consideration. That is, we should think about what we ought to do with the sand, what we ought not to do with the sand, even though we don't want to give the sand rights and we don't want to have it voting and so on. Do you mean that instrumentally, like we should be careful with the sand because if we move it, it might erode the shore and that's bad for people? Partly, I think I do. Yeah, what I mean by moral consideration is that I should be careful what I do with the sand because that might affect our living well in common. But you said partly. Is there more than that to it? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I think for me, not, but I'm willing to be convinced. And I liked your moral humility that you began with. And I think that's part of your point in your essay is that an awful lot of moral humility is required here. And that might just mean we shouldn't laugh at Lemoyne for his consideration. I mean, I think that there are examples where we extend moral consideration to non-human animals or parts of nature for their own sake that we might not have any demonstrable instrumental interest in. For example, when we try to prevent the extinction of certain species, whether that's through hunting laws or whatever, 
that there we're saying there's something wrong about eliminating a species. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a species that benefits us or that we have any other interactions with, but that there's something wrong with disturbing an ecosystem that has its own order that doesn't necessarily work for us, but has a value intrinsic value, right? So I think that there are examples that we could give of that. But if I could go back to the kids who are mean to the robots for just one <laughs> second, because in an earlier episode, we talked with Kate Devlin about similar issues. And in that episode, we were talking about, well, we were talking about sex robots. And we were worried about the concern that, for example, if you gave sex robots to habitual sex offenders or to pedophiles, for example, that that might reinforce those bad actions in real life, IRL. And Kate said, you know, we have plenty of studies that show that there's not a lot of evidence that, for example, if kids are violent in video games, that they're violent in real life, or that if kids listen to aggressive music, that they're aggressive in real life. But another thing that she said in that conversation that I think might be really helpful here is she mentioned that her son or daughter, I can't remember, sorry, Kate, uh, but that her son or daughter will often say to Siri or Alexa, stop. But she says, but my child knows not to say that to another human being or to another child. They would never do that. They would never say, you know, stop or be quiet or whatever to <laughs> another person. And that this is how intelligence works is that we have different domains of action and there are different rules often in those domains. And this is where I think to close the circle back to where we started in this conversation, that there are good reasons to begin training, for example, college age students and younger school age students in the kinds of principles that I was proposing before, the overextension of moral consideration, for example, because they have a different understanding of their world with technologies already. And they have a way of understanding how to incorporate these things that, and I think Gina's right about this, that adults would feel resentful about being made to respect or being made to extend moral consideration to. But you know what? Those grown-ass adults are going to be dead, dead, dead by the time this matters. <laughs> so if we're looking really to prepare a future, it seems like, yeah, let's really change how we're talking about these things. But I think part of what I understand Gina's saying is that these younger generations are going to learn how to interact with future beings based upon how we demonstrate, model, and teach them now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So let's model differently for them. Yeah, you just said that like us grown-ass people just aren't going to do it because we're just caught. <laughs> well, we're not teaching 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds how to be moral agents anymore. Nobody's teaching, like, unfortunately, no one's yeah, I gonna, teaching. I was going to say, unfortunately, the fact that we've given up on them is really tragic. And yeah. we're seeing the fruits of that. But we are teaching school-age children and college students how to be moral agents. Indeed. I think that the crucial point probably comes younger than that. We, I think you're right about this, that it's young kids who are most likely the entry point for conceptual possibilities. Yeah. So if you allow young kids, if you encourage young kids to interact with technology in a respectful way or an open way, then you leave the possibility that 50 years from now, when they are the ones calling the shots, they are going to be more open to what these things 
things might be like in the future. And I think the best model for that is the last century of how people relate to pets. Like I mentioned before, a century ago, most people, most adults thought of pets as this thing you treat as property and you don't really care about. It's not really part of the family. And that change happens gradually over multiple generations where it becomes a widespread practice of a dog or cat in the house, grow up with this animal around them all the time. By the time they're adults, it just seems strange to them to not treat this thing as part of the household. And then we skip three or four generations forward. And now everybody who's an adult today, almost everybody who's an adult today, shares that kind of attitude. And that does start with people just becoming sensitized to the possibilities of interaction. So I do think that there is this possible future. The worry, of course, is that people who build consumer robotics and consumer chatbots are also aware that their future customer base is currently in its childhood. And they will try to exploit that by strapping onto the bits of empathy. They will find ways of making robots with cute eyes and they make cooing noises and basically they're designed to build brand loyalty for their particular products. And so that is a worry. How do we find that balance between encouraging kids to become the future adults who will be open to what these entities might be without just creating a channel for exploitation by populist politicians or by corporations or by anybody who wants to use this new path pathway for empathy to meddle with what kids are going to think about them in the future. So looking forward to this future world in which we might be coexisting with sentient AI or our children or their children or our grandchildren might be, I want to ask you, what are some questions that we're not asking now, specific questions that we really should be asking? And also, what are some assumptions about the emergence of sentient AI are we making now that we should not be making? So I'm thinking right now about a couple generations from now. If I'm right that we're maybe five, six something generations away from these things being full persons, there's going to be a point where we have to start recognizing that when they become persons, they're going to be different from us in really crucial ways, in metaphysical ways that are really hard to keep your head around. And one of those are the identity conditions of individuals. Mm -hmm. So people come in singles, they're themselves. We can't really just duplicate them, but software you can duplicate. And so if we reach a point where an artificial mind can be simulated or constructed or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's not yet a full person, but it's functioning like a mind very much on the cloud. And then someone can just hit copy paste. And now there's another one with the exact same personal traits, whatever you want to call that. And so then the question is, do we think about this as multiple manifestations of the same person? Do we think about these as something like digital perfect duplicate twins in the same way we think about humans that way? I don't know. I don't have a proposal for this, but these are questions that will have to be settled politically because eventually these systems, if we stop exploiting them and eventually five, seven generations down the line, acknowledge them as persons, we're going to have to answer questions about what kinds of rights do they have? Do they get to vote? Do they all get to vote? If there are millions of copies of one, do they all get to vote once? Do they vote collectively millions of times? I don't, like, these are science fictional questions right now, and I genuinely believe living generations right now will never be able to answer them because we don't have the concepts yet. It's going to take generations to work it out, but at some point, that has to become a serious conversation that people are willing to have and not just a science fiction story or something to laugh about with your friends. Right now, it's not real. 
but it's going to be, I think. And so finding a way to sort of edge toward that, where we can ask those kind of really strange science fictional metaphysical questions with a straight face, that's a challenge. One of the things in your essay that I had never thought seriously about in this context of the moral status of AI and so on is the way in which you emphasize the development of language. In the previous segment, we talked a lot about developing moral agents, children as developing moral agents. And in thinking through this point in your piece, one of the things I began to realize is we're not really sure how moral agents develop, and language is probably a huge part of that. And what's difficult about that is language is like the air. You know, we don't notice it. It's just all around. And yet, I think your essay does a very nice job of pointing out that we need to start developing language around these issues. We might not get it right tomorrow. Our current students might not get it right, but we need to start developing language around these things. So you just pointed out one important issue about identity. But another important issue is the ways in which, particularly I think in North America in general and other places around the world, the question of bodily integrity has become huge in all sorts of moral philosophy and political philosophy. But if, as you were pointing out, the intelligence part of AI is widely distributed around the world, what kind of integrity do we offer that thing? I, for one, don't think that the idea of AI personhood makes sense. And for this very reason, that AI is never going to be a singular entity, a thing that is identifiable with itself alone. And so I think that we do have a way of talking about, for example, group identities. And if we encounter sentient or conscious or whatever AI, that we're going to have to start interacting with it as we interact with groups and not as we interact with individuals. And we certainly have ways of doing this, right? We can talk about the way I interact with racial groups, with gender groups, with national groups or religious groups. And I think that we'll probably have to start talking about AI that way. So not like this is my friend Bob, he's an AI, but <laughs> this is a language model. It does these things and I interacted with it in this way and it deserves these kinds of moral considerations and ought to have different kinds of rights and responsibilities. So I do think that we're going to have to drop the way that we talk about personal identity now which shouldn't be surprising, right, if we're talking about an entirely different entity that is constituted in a dramatically different way than we are. I want to push back on that a little bit, because I, I want to agree with you that we need to expand our conceptual vocabulary. We need to be able to talk about this kind of groupish thing. But I don't want to assume that's the form this is going to take. I mean, it seems yeah. to be possible that yeah. there will be future entities that will conceive of themselves in much the same way we do, in part because they're modeled on us. And mm -hmm. so some of them, even though, as Rick points out, the physical of their minds might be in the cloud, it might be distributed around the planet, they might nevertheless conceive of themselves as a single subject of experience in much the same way we do. If you talk to a person, if they're just a replaceable example of a demographic group, they'll probably resent you. <laughs> I mean, we just don't know. We don't know what these things are going to be like. There might be some that are like people, and then there are some that are like this collective entity. We don't know. And so that's the hard part. And, and again, this is what's such a big challenge is we're not going to know. I don't expect to have these questions resolved in any sense in my lifetime. I think this is something 
something that people are going to be arguing about 150 years from now. So that's a real challenge is how do we set the groundwork for that debate mm. when we ourselves are not going to be part of it? I agree with you and also want to push back a little bit because I think that it's entirely possible that we could interact with AI that present themselves to us as distinct individual things that think of themselves in their interaction with us as distinct individual identities. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's their self-conception outside of their sure, of course, interactions yeah. with the, I know you when I say I'm pushing back, I'm using that loosely, right? <laughs> I know that you know this already, but I do think that we actually have a really good science fiction model of this already. And that was in the film Her, which was a film with Joaquin Phoenix at probably 10 years old now or something where Joaquin Phoenix interacts with and falls in love with basically a personified operating system. And sorry, spoiler alert, listeners, but at the end of the film, the operating system in the cloud joins with other AIs, right? And suddenly just isn't interested in interacting in that way anymore, isn't interested in interacting as an individual and really honestly sees the limits of interacting as an individual. I get it that all we're doing is imagining the future right now. And honestly, if we're going to extend our imaginations, I really hope that humans come to that realization sometime in the next few generations. Generations, but I'd have less hope for that than I do of AI doing it. But what I hear you, Gina, trying to do is to thread a needle between a kind of moral openness in the setting the groundwork, that we need to have some kind of preparation and we need to think about how we're going to talk and how we're going to think when there is sentient AI. And I think we have to stick with this openness because it really does have to do with our technological capabilities. So right now, we just don't have the technological capability to put one of these really complex language models in a relatively small device like a robot or something like that, but we might. Yeah. And once we do, then it seems like I might be interacting not only with individuals in the sense we're currently thinking about individuals, but also they think of themselves as individuals. And so I like this openness that we just don't know what the technology is going to afford in the future, but that can't be the reason why we don't talk about that now. Right. Yeah. I mean, the model I keep thinking about it is, this is oversimplifying the historical analogy, but it's just an orienting point, is imagine if you could somehow travel back in time to Western Europe in, say, the year 1350, with all the knowledge you have now, and, and suppose you can somehow communicate with people and you don't get immediately burned as some sort of witch. Um, <laughs> suppose people are willing to talk to you, and no you chance. know what's coming. You know <laughs> yeah. the age of exploration and colonialism is coming, and you know all these Western Europeans are going to invent excuses to exploit people all around the world, and they're going to tell themselves that anybody who's not a European is subhuman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you have the chance to start manipulating their debate so that they don't go that way, so that they're prepared. They already have trade across the Mediterranean with North Africa, and you're like, draw some analogies. I bet there's more people out there who are different from Europeans as well. You know, whatever. whatever. I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to go back in time and change uh, medieval Europeans' viewpoints. But my point is, if you could do it, you'd have to be thinking multiple generations in the future. Right. Because you have sowed the seeds for this conversation two or three generations before it's actually possible to go and travel around the world and meet all kinds of new people. Mm. And that's where I think we are 
are right now when it comes to these artificial entities. We need to start thinking about preparing the conceptual vocabulary, even though we don't know what it's going to look like when anybody gets there, and even though we're not going to be there to do it. I 100% agree with you. I think about this in analogy to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I often think a huge part of that search is looking for carbon. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking to myself, there could be perhaps infinite other ways in which intelligence could emerge without carbon. And in fact, there was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which there was a silicone-based intelligence. It was basically sand. And what I love about it is the sand referred to humans as carbon sacks of mostly water. (laughs) But the whole point of the episode was because we couldn't conceive of this as a life form, as intelligence, we accidentally treated it horribly. Now, that's not to say that had we known, we wouldn't have treated it horribly on purpose. But the point there was they accidentally treated it horribly because they couldn't foresee other possibilities outside of their current circumstances. Yeah, no, that's right. And thinking about a possible future where we meet extraterrestrial intelligence, the doors are really wide open there for like, what could be the physical instantiation of intelligent life elsewhere? elsewhere in the universe when we really have no idea. And I don't know whether that will actually happen. I, I mean, who knows? But if you think it will, you can think about our interaction with AI as like a test run for that because <laughs> AI is not going to be as alien as actual aliens. We know we're modeling it on ourselves. We know it's going to be based upon the elements and physics we interact with regularly on Earth. We can predict some constraints on what it will be like. We have almost no predictions of what some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence might be like. And so if you think that one goal of long-term human preparation is be prepared to interact with truly alien intelligences, a good practice run is what do we do over the next two or three generations, or sorry, two or three hundred years, while we decide how to interact with the kind of alien minds that we created. So returning to this theme of sowing the seeds, preparing the ground for this, how do we now work towards extending the conversation about the possible emergence of a sentient AI to people who don't have the fundamental technical expertise to even understand how current neural network machine learning works. There's at least two parts to it. One is that we need to start teaching people the basics of computer science younger yes. and younger. And I hate saying that because like, there's a bunch of people who are trying to sell you really useless products, like teach your kids coding, who say the same thing. Yeah. And so any good idea is going to involve a lot of grifters moving in on it. And so it's really <laughs> hard to know what to actually do practically, but it's just got to be true that the distinction between classical AI that involves hard coding lists of programmed rules, like the way we used to think about AI, the distinction between that and machine learning that uses giant data sets to infer probabilistic likelihoods. That's a central distinction, which I think a lot of people, when I teach my philosophy of AI class, that's the core distinction of the class. And I build it on a model to empiricism and rationalism in the history of philosophy. And Mm -hmm. so I I think we've got to start building that in to how people think about the nature of intelligence and how humans work from pretty early on so people have an intuitive understanding. That's part of it. The other side of it, and this is the key point in my piece about how the tech industry works, is there needs to be a certain permissiveness for engineers themselves to have these kind of concerns. So Google has fired Blake Lemoyne. I can't speak to the details of that action. Google says that Lemoyne essentially leaked proprietary 
proprietary data. And if that's true, I suppose that's a reason to fire an engineer. But the overall tenor really worried me. The fact that people across the board were just making fun of Lemoyne. And mm. that's a bad culture to develop because that's going to deter the people who have the most experience with these machines from warning us when they take each step along the progression towards a thing that we ought to regard as a person. And so like the thing we can do right now is hold back from ridiculing somebody who raises the kind of concerns that Lemoyne does. We can disagree with him. I do. I don't think he's right about Lambda. But it's really important that we, we build a culture that says, okay, come and tell us if you really believe that this system has a soul or has a mind and let's have a conversation rather than we're going to ridicule you and shun you and ostracize you and shut it down because that's just going to lead us to the point where we can't acknowledge these things as persons ever. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. Noelle is in fact sentient, and she is not artificial. And because she has a physical body, she wants to go home, so she just made last call. And so while she's pouring our last drinks and we're sipping them, Gina, I wanted to ask, what are you working on now? So I'm working on a book right now about the concept of certainty and the role it plays in political life. Oh. So like, we want to know things for certain. For example, we want to know for certain, is this AI sentient or not? Or we mm. want to know what's going to happen with the pandemic, etc. Are we in a recession? We want to know things with certainty, but we don't get them out of messy real life. And I think populist politicians and people who just want to sow chaos exploit our desire for certainty to to latch us on to bad simulacra of certainty. And so the part of the book is to look back at historical investigations, people like Descartes or Zhuangzi, who are approaching this question of like how we can have knowledge from different directions and trace the political implications for contemporary life. Well, one thing I know for certain is that it helps this podcast out a lot if you listeners would go visit our Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Try to throw a few dollars towards the podcast. It really does help us out and we appreciate you listening. The other thing that I know for certain is that we got to find a way home from this bar. It's been great meeting you, Gina. I really enjoyed your conversation. I really enjoyed your piece in The Guardian. So I'm going to call a cab and you guys want to ride with me? Or maybe a self-driving I was just going to say, if it's not self-driving, I'm in. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Gina. This has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you visiting us here at the bar. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.